0: All right, thank you for joining us. Welcome to another episode of Sharing the Hope through the Micah Mason Foundation. We are joined today by Dr. Jack Reichick, MD. Dr. Jack Reichick is the Robert and Dolores Harrington Endowed Chair in Pediatric Cardiology, Associate Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Professor of Pediatrics at the Perleman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a pediatric cardiologist with clinical and research interest in fetal echocardiology and in the outcomes of children with single ventricle type heart disease after Fontan operation. Dr. Rychek is director of the Fetal Heart Program, a clinical service providing care for the fetus with cardiovascular disease and its family. Dr. Rychek is also founding director of the Fontan Forward Program, the Fontan Rehabilitation Wellness and Resilience Development Clinic a unique multidisciplinary service focusing on comprehensive service to assess and manage the consequences of the Fontan circulation in patients with single ventricle complex heart disease. Dr. Rychek is also executive co-director of the Fontan Outcomes Network a multi-center national registry recently formed whose goal is to create a catalog and characterize 10,000 patients with single ventricle heart disease in the next three years. Dr. Rychek has made many contributions to our understanding of congenital and pediatric cardiovascular conditions. He has lectured around the world and has authored nearly 300 peer-reviewed manuscripts, review articles, and editorials, as well as edited multiple books, including a textbook on fetal cardiovascular imaging. Welcome, Dr. Jack Rychek. We appreciate you joining us today. Did I get the bio right? Is all that correct?
1: Yes, you did, Patrick. Yes, it's something my mother would have been very proud to have heard. I did actually convey a lot of that to her in the past. She's quite, she's still alive. She's quite proud of, uh, of what I've achieved. But whenever you list all of that, I am humbled and I blush a bit here, only in the sense that there are professional accomplishments which lead to a strong and passionate interest that I have, which of course we're going to talk about. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you at this early point in advance for this opportunity and this invitation.
0: You're very welcome. I appreciate having you. One of the primary reasons you're here is to talk about hypoplastic left heart syndrome and single ventricle children is another way to put it. So I'll start with the baseline. Why did you become interested in the problems associated with HLHS?
1: It's a great question to start because my interest in this does start at the beginning of the story of how we've approached care for hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So as you would mentioned, I'm a pediatric cardiologist. up here at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Starting back in my early days of my career and developing an interest in pediatrics, and I appreciated that I wanted to do something more than just general pediatrics. So explored a little bit with a couple of different ideas of where I should take my career, and ultimately decided to do pediatric cardiology because I thought it was one of the most challenging and most interesting of the different specialties of pediatrics. The heart is just a wondrous organ, and it still amazes me in terms of how it works, and the plumbing, and all of that. And so I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to come to train. At one of the world's premier centers, this would be the late 1980s, early 1990s, one of the world's premier centers in congenital heart disease, and that's the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. At that time, there was a surgeon here by the name of William Norwood. Bill Norwood was pioneering a variety of different strategies for how to care for what up until that point in time. was a lethal condition pretty much most other places uh, around the world. So, again, let's go back in time, early 1990s, where maybe at the time there were perhaps three or four centers that were still trying to figure out how best to create a sustainable circulation in these unfortunate babies that were born with only half a heart, with only a left ventricle. In the 1980s, prostaglandin developed, which is a medication that can keep the fetal circulation going, so that point in enough time. And then there were these really creative, innovative, brilliant surgeons and brave surgeons like Bill Norwood, who essentially tried to figure out how best to rebuild the heart in this particular condition. So a lot of that activity was happening here at CHOP uh, at the time. I was witness to many different successes and experiences that led Dr. Norwood and the team to move ahead and many unfortunate experiences which were not all that successful, which then directed the team to abandon certain types of procedures. It's a long answer to your question about why, how did I get interested. It's the question more so is how could I not have gotten interested in this particular condition being witness and as a young trainee, being very impressionable, working with Bill Norwood and his team, Marshall Jacobs, who was one of the other surgeons, was here. This was the, the center, the world center for referral for hypoplastic heart syndrome babies. We're coming in from everywhere around the world, Europe, different parts of the United States. And we were developing the surgical techniques for effective treatment. Fast forward now 30 years of my career uh, being here at CHOP um, and the continued improvement that evolution in management, strategies of management, have now led us to be able to say, whereas in 1988, 1990, this was still experimental, today there's a well-traveled path for success for most babies born most fetuses now, diagnosed with left heart syndrome. The next challenge that I see falling on perhaps my shoulders and many other shoulders of the generation of healthcare providers that currently exist is to say, it's not enough just to have a surgical success. I think we've worked that out at the moment as best as we can with our current understandings. How do we now create a normal quality and duration of life for these individuals beyond the surgery itself, knowing that we don't end up with a cure once the surgery has been employed. We end up with a workaround, uh, a jerry-rigging of the circulation, if you will, leading to a fontan circulation. And by virtue of the blessing of most patients today, say, surviving the surgery to a fontan circulation and even beyond, now what? Now, how do we improve and optimize the outcome of these individuals so that they can achieve the next goal. The original goal in the 1990s, when I first trained, was how do we get these babies who unfortunately have a lethal condition to survive? We've, to a degree, not fully, but to a degree, solved that. Our next question, our next challenge is how do we now get those who have survived to have a normal quality duration of life? And that's what I'm hoping to be able to contribute to a small piece to as well as inspire others to help us begin to answer that question.
0: All right. So I I have to ask, what was it like working with Dr. Norwood?
1: It was terrifying (laughs) and inspiring at the same time, only because so much of the work that he did took place sort of at the tail end of the era of cardiac surgical innovation or creativity, I should say, with the perspective here being so much of what was defined surgically was not done in a randomized clinical trial format the way we think of today. So what I mean by that is there was a generation of surgeons from Dr. Blaylock in the 1940s to Dr. Lilahai in the 1960s to Dr. Castaneda in the 80s and 90s to Bill Norwood, who created the surgeries that exist today through trial and error. In the patients, utilizing what they had learned from others, other experiences, learning from their own experiences, and then changing what was being done. So it was it was terrifying and awe-inspiring both at the same time. I, I will recount a quick anecdote. I remember, you know, today, I'm sure you probably know this, but and many other families who have children with HLHS, today we assume there's a stage one, there's a stage two, and there's a cat. Well. That was not the case in in 1990. We were doing stage one Norwood operation. And by the time children got to be about a year of age, they had all sorts of challenges and complications. And then we would quickly move to a Fontan at about even a year or 18 months of age. And uh, the success was limited with that. It was May of 1990. Uh, I remember this because it was a, a Saturday morning that I happened to attend one of Bill Norwood's review conferences where he went through a lengthy explanation and said, you know what, we're now going to change our approach. Starting at six months of age, we're going to start to do a half of a thought tag. We're going to connect mister vena cable to the pulmonary arteries. And that should provide sufficient oxygenation, and that should stage what is becoming a high-risk operation and then get to finish the Fontaine at two to three years of age. I remember him fiddling around with what to call the the, the Demi Fontan, then he called it the Hemi Fontaine, which is actually one of the, that name has persisted, but really it's evolved now to what's known as the bi-directional essentially the same operation, connected to the formula, but working with him was this was incredible thing day to day. What else are we going to learn today? What, what are we going to do, do today that may make a difference or may not make a difference or may result in, in some challenges and complications. And trying to explain that to families, many of whom were coming here realizing that we were going through trial and error, trying to save their babies, and was, a, was a very, very, I should say, rewarding experience. It was a very challenging experience, but very rewarding at the same time.
0: Good, good. That's sort of the past, right? Where we've been to get to where we are now so let's talk a little bit about the future. You mentioned in your bio the Fontan Outcomes Network. So, what is the Fontan Outcomes Network?
1: That is an organization that uh, has been formed that will perform duties of being the foundation for a registry and will promote quality improvement work amongst a network of centers to establish better ways to care for these children and these families. I'm choosing my words carefully there uh, in terms of sort of defining because there's a lot more to say about about all of that. So it is a growing organization. It started with 12 centers, 12 founding centers. We have now expanded to 31 centers across North America, within that uh, some Canadian centers as well. The objective here is to gain strength through numbers. In the moment, there is no one center or even small group of centers that can uh, answer questions and achieve the goals that we have of really improving the, the care for these individuals and their families. It's only through the recruitment of large numbers of, of patients and through the collaboration with smart people at different centers and with families and patients Throughout the network, that will help us to achieve these goals. Again, what are the goals? To create an infrastructure that will allow us to do research and answer questions about the trajectory of patients. Give you one quick example. We know now that we can harness energies and uh, prescribe a surgical strategy that allows for. How do we then individualize care for, say, a two- or three-year-old to make sure that by the time they're 30, they are healthy, happy, and have a, a good quality of life? The thing that we're discovering is that there's tremendous variability as to how these patients are landing when they get to their 20s and 30s. Some are achieving that on their own. Many are not. So by mapping the trajectory through this registry where we will enroll patients into the Fontaine Outcomes Network. And we'll follow them for the lifespan. We'll be able to track how they're doing, look at their outcomes, and that provides the material that we need to do the research that's necessary to say, okay, these are the things that lead to a good outcome. These are the things that lead to a less than good outcome. And then have that circled back to care strategies and plans that currently exist. The QI work that will be done, quality improvement work, uh, involves an entire science uh, of the collaboration that exists within learning networks, where through these network connections and by properly asking questions and monitoring data, we can relatively quickly learn what works and what doesn't work immediately. I'll give you an example of how a learning network has already made a major difference in outcomes for children with single ventricle, and that's another learning network called the NPCQIC, National Pediatric Quality Improvement Collaborative. It's a a learning network, also a group of uh, centers that have collaborated on understanding what contributes to some of the interstage challenges, interstage mortality between stage one Norwood and the BioNRx Glen, And in a relatively short period of time, by collecting data and implementing certain care strategies Interstage mortality has been reduced from about 10 to 15% to less than 5%. So, lives have been saved by implementing elements of care that we learned from this large learning network of the process of quality improvement. So, imagine applying those principles for our Fontana patients. What do we need to do to get a child who's had a of Fontana? to exercise at a high level once they get to be a teenager? What do we need to do to prevent development of complications? What do we need to do to support their uh, emotional and behavioral health? What do we need to do to support families so that their emotional uh, health is is in a good place to support and nurture uh, a child that's growing up? Uh, These are just some examples of questions that that will be uh, answered through this QI uh, network that will be developed. So that's, on the surface, the major purpose of the Fonkin-Occentrum Center. i have said one or two additional things, and that is by the strength of this collaboration that will exist across multiple centers, we will have the platform that will allow us also to undertake some more traditional clinical trials, like, for example, drug trials, or things like, using wearable technologies to monitor activity and record information to get a sense of what type of activity and patient-reported outcomes might best predict certain challenges or better outcomes, and then quickly use that information to to cycle back to the the care centers and to families to provide feedback. I keep saying families and patients, and it's important. I think one of the unique things about the FogCAD Outcomes Network And something that's very unique, I think, in the current era, very different than when I was working with with Bill Norwood 30 years ago, is the importance and value of the patient and family contribution to what we're doing. It's not something that we're doing to a patient and family. It's something that is a partnership with patients and families as they inform the collective as to what the priority should be and how we should be proceeding so within the structure
0: of the Fontaine Occupy Network, as you may know, we, we do have members, leaders
1: that are patients and family members who have children with, with single ventricle. And each one of our work groups that are focused on different areas of the Fontan of the Occupy Network also have patients involved. One of the immediate offshoots of what we've been able to do as well uh, right now is even before we've actually launched the registry, we don't yet have a stitch of data in the registry yet that launch is being planned in the fall, but we've created this platform for the networking. There is now something called the single chat, a group where patients, families gather on a regular basis just to, to talk about topics. There's tremendous benefit in just patients, families sort of articulating their concerns, sharing things that they might have been concerned about or inner thoughts that other families may have as well, in an identical way. And there's this tremendous reaffirmation and motivation once, once that happens. The other thing we've done is something called our, our case review conference. So we, we have a, a regular every other month webinar gathering where the different centers share knowledge. So each center takes a lead and each one of these picks a topic. And discusses in a case based way a particular challenge, like if you're at root dilation in one, we've undertaken heart failure, valve insufficiency in another, and we have one coming up in July on cyanosis in the Fontana. So a center will host, present material, and then agenda a conversation where all can learn from the review process. So. Lots of things, lots of good things are, are happening already, and lots that we anticipate as a consequence of
0: the podcast actors network. How did you become involved in FON? I mean, if you're you know one of the founding board members, were you one of the coalescing agents? Did you come be brought into it?
1: It's been a process for a couple of years now to get us to this point. Again, for a while, as I said, it was, what do we need to do to get survival? What do we need to do surgically? And then when... It became apparent that we now have a series of patients who are having highly variable outcomes. Many individuals who were caring for these patients began to question as to our practice, as to whether it was correct or not. What medications should we be doing, offering? Uh, what recommendations should we be making about exercise or not? And then through the academic connections, like minded individuals gathered. It was back in 2019 that the American Heart Association charged a group of us who were thinking about this to come up with some suggestions or recommendations for the American Heart Association statement. So I was honored to be given the opportunity to chair this international group of uh, 20 individuals. And we brainstormed for about a year and a half before we put that document together. So I think that was an important catalyst in bringing attention to the care of the, of the contact patient. And then this organization, as I mentioned earlier, the NPCQIC had formed a few years back in the maybe, are going to get wrong maybe 2012, 2014 era, maybe around then, probably about 10 years ago.
0: I think it was like 2008. It was a little earlier. even earlier.
1: Yeah, not by yeah. much. <laughs> you were close. Yeah. They were focused on a very narrow time frame between the, the interstate. But yet, Using these QI techniques, they were able to um, to demonstrate that they could improve outcomes. So all of that came together with leaders within the Fontan thought community to say that it's time for us to form this group as well. There are questions that we cannot answer individually that can only be answered through group collaboration. Another effort that had also sort of demonstrated the power of large groups like this was work that was being done by the Pediatric Heart Network, which is an NIH-sponsored research endeavor focused initially on surgical strategies using either a shunt or a conduit for the initial Norwood operation. But what that demonstrated was, again, the power of multiple institutions coming together in answering global questions that we were all asking. So that's what led to my participation in it. We have... Number of national thought leaders involved. We have some senior folks like myself, but also some mid level and also junior folks that are involved. And I think one of our very strong missions here is to create sustainability of this effort. And in order to do that, it's very important that we mentor and train mid level and other junior clinicians and investigators. And by the way, the same thing is happening from our family and patient leaders where they're mentoring and training other patient advocates and patient leaders so that we can create a sustainable organization.
0: Yeah. I always wonder that because, you know, these surgeries they are so complex and they're done at such a, like a ridiculously small scale. You think about the human heart at, at birth, it's like a walnut, right? And, and yet doing these very complex surgeries, and it's always kind of a question in my mind is like, okay, people are going to train to continue to do this down the line, right? Because this is at the children's hospital we were at, we had one, there was one surgeon who could do it and he had a couple of trainees. And so that's always the question in my mind is like, is the next generation being trained to take over to do this kind of work? But that's good to hear. There are surgeons
1: that are being trained. And, and I think that the other flip end of it is to make sure that there are cardiologists and providers that are being trained to continue to monitor the health and wellness of of these particular individuals. Surgical training is challenging, and I think, no doubt, there is going to continue to be a need to motivate individuals, smart and technically skilled individuals, to enter the field of congenital heart surgery. That could be a bit of a challenge in the coming years, but I know large programs like ours and others, we do have training systems where we're generating this particular skill set. You know, it's not Even the best of surgeons, where you can readily learn this, you sort of have to have a a
0: bit of natural talent, as well as the ability to train to do these highly skilled operations. And we had a saying in the nuclear sciences, we talk about there's a lot of art in that science. (laughs) There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of artistry in in surgery. Yeah. Yeah. What is the Fontan Outcomes Network's, let's say, short-term goal, like the next year? What kind of things do they want to accomplish? Maybe the next three to five years, what are they looking at?
1: Well, short-term, we're still an extremely young organization that is looking to look up a couple concrete things. First of all, we are continuing to recruit centers. I think our goal is to mimic what the NPCQIC has done and have 50, 60 centers that are members. So we want to be able to capture as many patients as we can. Our stated goal within the first year of launch of the Fontaine Outcomes Network, with a launch date that we're looking at this fall, is to recruit 1,000 patients into the registry uh, itself. And by the way, when I say recruitment to the registry, really all we're talking about is getting permission for families to say, "Can we collect your data?" Patients don't have to do anything. There are no testings that are done beyond the clinical testing. So, all we're asking permission for is to be able to in an anonymous way, collect that information and to store it so that we can catalog individuals and begin to track their outcomes. So 1,000 patients in the first year, 10,000 patients in the first three years. And that we estimate is probably less than half of the total number of patients with the FONTAN circulation in the United States but would give us a sizable number of individuals and a critical mass that will begin to allow us to start answering some important questions. I think once the registry starts going as well, we will, and once we collect data and have individuals in the database itself, we will have the opportunity to ask some important QI questions, quality improvement questions, and begin to come out with recommendations for changes in care, based on what we learned from a QI perspective, from a network standpoint, I'd like to be able to look back in three to five years from now and say that we established a system whereby patients and families will go to the Fontaine Outcome Network to learn about some of these challenges and how best to optimize care. And so, having a resource to the patient community that will educate on, on what is, you talk about the surgery being complex. The outcome is complex. So the physiology itself is somewhat complex, and so having a, a resource for families to understand mm-hmm. what was done, what's the circulation like, what some of the challenges are, I think would be would be tremendously important. In five years, I would hope we would have, lay down the gauntlet, say we want to have fifty to sixty centers, I want us to have ten thousand plus patients uh, in the registry. I would like for us to have generated a good body of new knowledge, and I would like. In that five-year of time, I think this is totally doable for us to say that we've moved the needle on outcomes and care for patients with single ventricle and that we establish and lay the groundwork for the system, the foundation that will allow us to further move that needle going forward.
0: Well, ambitious, but I, I think definitely doable. Within that framework, what do you in particular hope to accomplish? through FON, or or maybe even just beyond FON? I'd like to contribute to making sure that we can achieve
1: those goals that I've I've sort of stated. And so from a leadership perspective, I'm honored and proud to work with uh, an incredible team. Sasha Opitowski is my co-executive leader from Cincinnati Children's. Carol Lannan is our learning network and quality improvement expert and leader in our group. Tom Lent is a patient himself who as HLHS, and interestingly, we'll be starting work
0: in University of Michigan and doing some uh, some uh, outpatient work in the realm of tech network deliverables. And Stacey Lynn and Diane
1: Pickles are two family members; uh, they have children, both have kids with HLHS. I'm listing sort of my partners here in this overall endeavor. We have a fantastic group of individuals who help with the administration of this effort. So. Personally, I'd like to see us get to a point of organizational maturity where we are an engine and we're generating new information and new modes of care. Specifically, my own areas of interest within this uh, relates to a couple of the challenges that we see in our contact patients. One relates to fibrosis that occurs in the liver. And with a concept that we have that perhaps fibrosis may not just be a liver issue, but maybe something that we see in a number of different organs. And so we do have some work being done to try and explore that. And I'm hoping that we can begin to utilize the Fontaine Actors Network as a platform for some research there. You mentioned it in my introduction, but I'll, I'll also state quickly here that I think it's really important and I think really interesting, and it is that... I do believe that so much of our outcomes and our, our health outcomes are dependent upon what happens before birth. So, bringing some of the prenatal concepts and marrying that to some of the long term outcomes. In other words, what should we be looking for as markers that may predict long term outcomes? And therefore, what should we be doing to modify prenatal health and prenatal care? that can improve outcomes for single ventricle, is uh, another area of strong interest of mine. We have some very, very, I think, innovative uh, ideas concerning the role of the placenta and placental health in single ventricle, with some evidence, growing evidence, to suggest that there may be some problems with how the placenta is built in the same way that we're seeing problems with how the heart is built. So these are sort of my you know, individual areas of interest that I think will, will be important contributors to our overall knowledge base, and utilizing the Fond Network for this is, I think, going to be important. I'll mention one more thing that is probably worth stating, but don't have much to say about how exactly we're going to do this at the moment, but that is, I've mentioned the NPC-QIC a couple of times. They're focused in on early life outcomes for kids with HLHS and single ventricle. We're looking at the lifespan. Gosh, it makes a heck of a lot of sense for these two organizations to coalesce because that defines the continuity of care. And so um, as a personal goal, I would like us to in a few years henceforth for us to see a single organization that, in fact, begins this
0: monitoring, this identification of care prenatally. That carries through to the lifespan into adulthood,
1: because each of the variables, each of the factors along that lifespan trajectory does contribute to something down the road. How you're traveling on the highway, be it in Texas or Pennsylvania Turnpike or wherever you are early on, does impact what's going to happen down the road. And we want to know whether there is something around the curve or around a bend or what the road map looks like. Being able to observe that roadmap from the beginning of your trip to know, you know, that again, the destination is pretty clear. We want a normal quality and of life, no different than other kids who don't have heart disease. That's the goal. How we get there, we have to have a map. And maybe that's the best metaphor I could offer, which is that what the 510 Outcomes Network will do is to map that trajectory and identify so along that map with all the twists and turns that are there and get clarity on what that map looks like.
0: Very good. If there is a, a patient or a parent listening or watching this, what advice would you have to them as far as getting involved or helping, or they hear this and like, oh my gosh, I have to do something, which is the space I've been in many times. <laughs> what can they do? We are
1: recruiting providers and families and patients into this collaborative effort. So I would ask folks to go to our website, www.fantanoutcomesnetwork.org, Fonten Outcomes Network. You just search that. You'll, you'll find the website. At the moment, the way to get involved is
0: for centers to be enrolled. So what I would do as a patient is
1: I would encourage your cardiologist, your healthcare provider. To enroll. So wherever you are, across the US and anywhere in North America today, talk to your provider. Say, hey, you heard about the 510 Outcomes Network? And um, most cardiology groups, even private practices, are affiliated in some way with hospitals, with centers that care for congenital heart disease. We want those centers to join the organization. When they join the organization, that opens the door for providers and for patients to then become active members. And active membership means participating in everything you just talked about, contributing to the development of these QR projects, participating in the chat rooms, learning about all that would be beneficial to you and your family. So I would encourage patients to encourage their healthcare providers to join.
0: All right. I have a clear question. It's not one I sent you, so <laughs> if you don't want to answer, you don't have to. But occasionally, or, and more than I'd like, we see in the various HLH communities, people talk about being diagnosed in utero with HLHS, and then the first cardiologist they speak to basically tells them their child has no future. What would you say to that kind of parent if they came into your office and told you that? Patrick, you're, you're raising an important point here, which
1: reflects a couple of different things. I think there's a lot to unpack in your question there. First of all, if they're coming to my office, that means that they somehow found the right path. So somebody put them on the right path, subsequent to their initial encounter. And I'm not saying that, you know, arrogantly, it's just that they found a place where we can argue against that initial statement. Now, the initial statement is not the case. It's, it is not that there is no future for these, for these children. There is. And not only is there, but now we have these organizations that are working to improve that future. There's no doubt that there is a room for options and hope for a future for children with, with hypoplastic syndrome. In your question, though, however, what we're getting at, why is it that that sentiment still exists? And I think it's safe to say that there are still Pockets, uh, areas of what could be considered good health care, but maybe because of the r- relative rarity and uh, lack of commonality of this particular condition, individuals may not be up to date on the latest outcomes. So when I was a fellow in the late 1980s and 1990s and Bill Norwood was trying to figure out how to create survival for these patients, maybe that statement was arguably reasonable at that point. 30 years ago but today it's just not true it's just not the case uh, many centers have established and have reported about the fact that for all forms of single ventricle as a cohort survival is possible and quality of life for most of these individuals is quite good as you enter your adolescent and adult years with challenges that arise with an uncertain future right? Because we don't yet have anybody who's 40, 50, or 60 with HLHS. Maybe some other forms of intellectual. So it depends on how you define that. Does that mean that there's no future? Oh, Far off the case. The other thing to remember, I always tell our, our fetal families this point, make a prenatal diagnosis, is, you know, I can pretty much map for you some of the certainties and uncertainties up until the age of 30. But for a fetus today, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we will have some new solutions. We'll have new strategies. If FON is successful, we will absolutely have new strategies for caring and optimizing outcomes. So that's where I think there is room for, for optimism. Now, now, given that information, I will tell you just honestly that if families decide that that's not the route they want to take, we will support that. We are saddened by it, but we will support families making those choices at the proper time. But for a healthcare provider to say a priori that there's no future for these children is just not true. And perhaps one of the things, one of the offshoots although of, well, not a primary goal, but one of the offshoots of what we might do with the Bonten Network is by virtue of its existence and the knowledge that we will create perhaps that will move that notion out of the picture. And those individuals who hold that particular belief will become fewer and fewer. I think that's already the case in many, many parts of the United States today. I would only ask those individuals to just read the literature, become familiar with what's going on at the various beating and conferences where these things are being discussed. It's not that there's a totally scot-free course. So, be clear what I'm saying. It's not that we can, at the moment, yet, promise a normal quality duration of duration life. But we're on our way to, I think, achieving that. And there is room for optimism for those patients and those families.
0: Very good. Very good. Let's hope that sentiment dies out. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. Okay. And, of course, the most important question of all, what's the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia? Well, <laughs> So, you know,
1: cardiologist, but oh, I don't know. It's between Geno's and Pats. So I'm going to leave it at that.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm a Pats guy, shockingly, you know, given my name. There you go. I figured, yes. Sure. sure. Pats would make
1: sense for you. But uh, yeah, cheesesteaks are, yes, an important part of Philadelphia <laughs> culture. But I will share with you, it's it's not where I typically go, where I'm trying to go out for dinner or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's great oh my gosh there's great restaurants now philadelphia's become a foodie
0: town oh really really oh some fantastic
1: places any kind of food if folks are coming to philadelphia to visit i encourage you to do so it's a great town pats and Geno's are nice landmarks you know you can get your your, your little t-shirt or whatever trinket there you say you've been there but i would spend time at some of the other restaurants
0: be <laughs> <laughs> good I want to say we really appreciate you uh, coming on and agreeing to record with us and uh, doing the interview. I am very hopeful about the future of the Fontan Outcomes Network and the future of patients who have a single ventricle condition. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the hope with us. Well, thanks so
1: much, Patrick, for this opportunity and thanks for everything that you're doing in this community as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. I figure we're all in it together, right? So. <laughs> And thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this episode of Sharing the Hope with Dr. Rychek. If you'd like to become involved with the Fontan Outcomes Network, just search online for FON, F-O-N, or type out Fontan Outcomes Network. I'm your host, Patrick Mason, with the Micah Mason Foundation. And if you'd like to get involved with the Micah Mason Foundation or leave us a donation, you can reach us at micamasonfoundation.org. Thank you.